Hello there and welcome back to the Paradox Podcast. We are wrapping up our series in the book of 1 Peter, and today's episode is entitled Peter and the Hope of God. Today, we are talking about hope. And when I talk about hope today, I first need to talk about the Bible. And then from the Bible, I'm going to talk about the devil. And then I'm going to talk about Jesus. And then I'm going to read the words in 1 Peter chapter 5 to talk about what hope is and how it's helpful to us in 2019. So let's begin with the Bible. There is this idea that the Bible is a coherent and linear theological discourse that descended from on high. And because the Bible descended from on high, this idea continues to tell us that the Bible is free of contradiction or error because it is divinely inspired. And our God is a perfect God, and therefore God's word is a perfect word. Now, one can hold on to the idea of biblical inerrancy as long as one follows a very simple rule. You never read the Bible. Because within the first two chapters of this Bible, there is a major contradiction. And as you continue to read, you find that the Bible will backtrack or change ideas about who God is, which leads one to let go of the idea of biblical inerrancy rather quickly upon reading the Bible. Which leads us to ask the question, what is the Bible? Which we attempt to answer here every week on the Paradox Podcast. Well, this week I want to talk about how the Bible is the story of developing human awareness of God. And when we read the Bible closely, we can see how human beings change their perceptions of who God was based on their life experiences and what was worth taking forward and what was worth leaving behind. This becomes apparent when you read all of the Hebrew Bible. Now, the Hebrew Bible is the first 39 books of the Christian Bible, and Christians often refer to this degradingly as the Old Testament, but I will call it the Hebrew Bible for the rest of this podcast. Most scholars that I read talk about how the Hebrew Bible was developed over a 1,000-year period. This 1,000-year period took place from around 1150 BCE to 150 BCE. And when we say the words developed, what that means is that these stories were in some form either told or written down and passed from generation to generation and then arrived at their finalized form in 150 BCE. Now, when we talk about the Bible being a story of developing human awareness of God, you can see how the perception of the divine changed dramatically from 1150 to 150 BCE. Specifically, there is a marked difference between the perception of the divine before the 6th century BCE and after the 6th century BCE. The reason for this is because it's in the 6th century that the Babylonian army defeats Jerusalem and forces the people of Judah to live in exile. And according to the theology before the 6th century BCE, God completely fails the people of Judah. And so the people of Judah, while in exile, have to change their perception or awareness of the divine to match their reality. 
Because of this, there is a vast difference in the theology presented before the 6th century and the theology presented after the 6th century. We'll look at a few specific examples of this in just a moment. But it's important for us to understand that for a thousand years, the Hebrew Bible was developing human awareness of God through their own experience. This then was brought to a close sometime around 150 BCE when a group of Jews got together and said, let's put together the Hebrew Bible. And so some form of committee met sometime around the year 150 BCE and said, this book is in and this book is out and eventually formed the Hebrew Bible which we have with us today. After this collection of books was canonized, there is a period of 200 years of biblical literary silence between 150 BCE and sometime around 55 CE. In this period, we have the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, and to the best of our knowledge, nothing was written about Christ while Christ was alive. Then from 55 CE to 125 CE, during a 70-year period, we have all of the books of the New Testament being written, beginning with 1 Thessalonians and Galatians, and ending with John and Revelation. So while the Hebrew Bible was developed over a thousand years, the Christian Bible, or the New Testament, was developed between seven and ten decades, but it's still this developing awareness of the divine through multiple human experiences. One of those experiences was the life of Peter, and Peter writes in this window, 1st and 2nd Peter. So the last book of the Christian Bible was written sometime around 125 CE. For another 270 years though, Christians didn't have a Bible. They only had testimonies and the trust that Jesus was resurrected from the grave. This all changed in 397 CE when the church held a giant committee meeting in a city called Carthage, which is in modern-day Tunisia. It was here that a committee decided to put together the 27 books of the Christian Bible and adopt the 39 books of the Hebrew Bible to form the Bible that most Protestants have today. About 1,600 years after the Council of Carthage, we find ourselves in 2019 reading these words that were voted on by a committee. Now, a lot has changed since that committee meeting in Carthage in the way that we perceive the divine. And when we read the words of scripture, we have to remind ourselves that we are bringing our perception of the divine to a text that is thousands of years old that brings its perceptions of the divine to us. And so you can imagine there's this dance between 2019 and 125 CE and 1150 BCE where these three different voices are saying in different harmonies, here's how we understand God. And when most people write about their understanding of God, they also talk about suffering. And when every one of these three periods from 1150 BCE to 125 CE to 2019 want to tell us what suffering is. One thing Christians often forget is how much our perception of suffering has changed since the Bible was written. Namely, sometime around the 18th century, modern medicine was born. And with modern medicine came the idea and the hope that you could treat diseases and search for cures. 
This was a brand new idea in the 18th century. And it's here that medicine was hailed as a gift from God. And with medicine, we have a very different perception of suffering than the people who wrote the Bible so long ago. I tell you all these things because I know there are Christians who hold up the Bible and say, God has revealed all that we need to know about God in this book. Well, that implies that our picture of God has stopped developing since 125 CE. And a question I want to ask you as a listener of this podcast is this. Did God stop speaking to us after the year 125 CE when the last words of Revelation were dried on a page? The answer is, of course, no. Absolutely not. And the reason I can say absolutely not is because I believe, like all Christians, that God is alive. And if God has nothing more to say than what has already been written in the Bible, then we are professing that God is dead. And I know a lot of Christians who will read the Hebrew Bible and say, God speaks to Abraham. God speaks to Moses. God speaks to King David. Then they read the New Testament and they see how Jesus speaks not only to the 12 disciples, but to the apostle Paul and envisions to John. But after 125 CE, Christians will say, God spoke and God has nothing more to say. My brothers and sisters, the Bible is the story of developing human awareness of God. And I want you to know that I fully support the Council of Carthage's decision to close the biblical canon. That being said, there is a danger in closing the canon of the Bible. And the danger is that we believe that God doesn't speak to us in the same way that God spoke to the biblical authors. A much healthier way to approach the Bible is to trust that God continues to speak from 125 CE on until today, and that when we continue to develop our human awareness of God, in that moment, we are honoring the biblical text for what it is. When we experience things in our humanity that challenge a biblical perception of God, we are actually honoring the Bible when we speak about those things and trust them. And the whole reason for this is because the Bible is the story of developing human awareness of God. Now, I'd like to show you a specific examples about how this works and why it's helpful to us today. To talk about that, we need to talk about suffering. Now, in the 1,000 years that the Hebrew Bible was being written, the people of Judah, the people of Israel, experienced a lot of suffering. Whenever people believe in an all-powerful God, there is the question of suffering that needs to be answered or at least addressed. The attempt to address suffering in the presence of an all-powerful God is the practice of theodicy. And when we read the Hebrew Bible, we are introduced to a dominant theodicy that runs throughout its pages. The dominant theodicy of the Hebrew Bible is this. We suffer because we sin. Now in that statement, we have both a cause and effect. The cause is sin, 
and the effect is suffering. So the more that one sins, the more they are going to experience suffering, according to the theodicy of the Hebrew Bible. What's important for any student of the word to acknowledge, though, is that human beings write stories about how causes lead to effects. However, human beings experience the effects of suffering first and then search for a cause. Think for a moment about how America experienced the suffering of September 11, 2001. On that morning, I remember my mom running into my room saying, Craig, come quickly. You have to see what's on TV. I got dressed, ran to the TV, and looked in horror at the gaping, fiery holes that pierced the Twin Towers. In those moments, America had no idea what cause had led to this suffering. Instead, we were all just experiencing the suffering together in a state of shock as we realized that America was under a new form of attack. 17 years later, I had the opportunity to visit Ground Zero and go through the museum commemorating the lives lost and telling the complete story of 9-11. That museum is laid out like a giant timeline and it begins with the causes that started to build that eventually led to the effects of the national tragedy of 9-11. So when we write stories, we write stories about how causes lead to effects, but we often experience the suffering first and then go back and search for causes. And sometimes those causes are very close to the truth of what actually happened. But there are other times when faulty causes are assigned to the effects that no one debates. Which brings us to the Bible. I wanna tell you three stories that take place in the Hebrew Bible that talk about how our perception of the divine has developed over the past 3,000 years. Let's begin with a story in Leviticus chapter 10. Now Leviticus is the story about how a tabernacle was built among the Israelites in the wilderness and this tabernacle was the most holy site among the camps of the Israelites. Now, the tabernacle was so holy that the Israelites believed that the presence of God resided in the innermost chamber. Shortly after this tabernacle is dedicated and the presence of the Lord fills the most holy place, we read a story in Leviticus 10 that talks about what happens next. We read, now Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, each took his censer, put fire in it, and laid incense on it. And they offered unholy fire before the Lord, such as he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Now, when we look at this story very closely, we recognize that there is a cause which is they offered unholy fire before the Lord. And in effect, God sends a fire and this fire kills Nadab and Abihu. Now there is clearly suffering in this story. After all, Aaron, the high priest, has to bury his two sons. And there is no worse suffering that this life has to offer than having to bury your own children. So once you feel the weight of that tragedy, 
pause for a moment and think about how this story actually took place in real time. There was a fire in the tabernacle. And in this fire, there were two victims, Nadab and Abihu. Now, without any kind of scientific method or any ability to determine what causes a fire, people looked in the midst of this suffering and tried to explain why there was so much pain if God was all-powerful and all-loving. The cause they assigned to this tragedy, this indisputable fact of a fire in the tabernacle, is this. God killed Nadab and Abihu because they didn't follow the religious rules. Now, if this rubs you the wrong way, I will tell you, you are not alone. I have a hard time saying it out loud without having my stomach turn into knots. I would never, ever tell a grieving mother or father that God killed their children in a fire in a church because they didn't respect religion enough. We've left this perception of the divine behind us, haven't we? Another way to say that is that this is a primitive understanding of God, which makes perfect sense because it was probably first conceived and told sometime around 3,000 years ago. And while there are those who would argue it's in the Bible, so it stands for all time as an accurate portrayal of who God is, if you trust that the Bible is the developing story of human awareness of God, you can see how this is a primitive awareness and how we have moved beyond it. Which brings us to a second story that takes place in Numbers chapter 12. We read in verse 1, Miriam, the sister of Moses, and Aaron, the brother of Moses, spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom Moses had married, for he had indeed married a Cushite woman. After speaking against Moses, we read in verse 9 and 10, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Miriam and Aaron, and he departed. When the cloud went away from over the tent, Miriam had become leprous, as white as snow. Here, once again, we read about a clear cause, which is Miriam speaking against Moses because of the Cushite woman he married. And then we read about a clear effect, which is Miriam contracts leprosy. Now think about how this story unfolds with the theodicy that's in place here. We suffer because we sin. So Miriam contracts leprosy and people assuming that God is a God of justice say, well, she must have done something to deserve this. So they look backwards after they know that Miriam contracts leprosy and they say, oh, do you remember just a few days ago? When Miriam challenged a man's authority, God gave Miriam leprosy as a sign and a warning to all of us that women should not challenge a man's authority. Now, if you're like me, this rubs you the wrong way because you say this is a primitive understanding of God. Of course it is, because it was written thousands of years ago and the Bible is the story of developing human awareness of God. These are some of the first ideas we have about God. And so we shouldn't be dismayed or disappointed to read about primitive ideas about God. Which brings us to a third story from the Hebrew Bible. Now, if you were to ask any Christian today, 
who was Israel's greatest king, the overwhelming answer would be King David, Israel's second king, who took over shortly after Israel's first king, a man named Saul. Now, if you ask these same Christians, was Saul a good or bad king? Immediately, most Christians would say Saul was a terrible king. Now, if that is true, we can assume that we can look at the worst sins that David committed and the worst sins that Saul committed and say, clearly, Saul is a worse human being than David. So let's take the top three or the bottom three sins that David and Saul committed and compare them to one another, shall we? Let's begin with David's worst sin. David's worst sin was when he committed sexual coercion, adultery, murder, lying, and abuse of power all in one story. And all five of those sins revolve around David's lust for Bathsheba, which you can read about in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Saul's worst sin took place in 1 Samuel 15 when he executed some Amalekites and not all of the Amalekites as ordered by the prophet of God, Samuel. David's second worst sin takes place in 1 Samuel 25 when David commits sexual coercion, adultery, murder, lying, and abuse of power, which all revolves around his lust for a woman named Abigail. He did the same five sins again earlier in the story. <laughs> Saul's second worst sin was when Samuel said, wait for me to commit a sacrifice before you move. I'll be there in seven days. Samuel doesn't show up on time. Saul then offers the sacrifice without him, and Samuel is angry. The third worst sin that David commits in his lifetime takes place over seven chapters between 2 Samuel 13 and to the end of chapter 19. In those passages, we read about how David refused to punish his son Amnon when Amnon raped David's daughter Tamar. Now, may I remind you that David being king was head of the legal system, and he did not seek prosecution or punishment or retribution for his son, even though he knew his son raped his daughter. Saul's third worst sin was he consulted a fortune teller in 1 Samuel 28. Now, when you compare these three sins together, a question arises. Why is David considered to be a good king and Saul considered to be a bad king? Because the sins of David are far worse than the sins of Saul. The answer to that question is because the Bible tells us that David was a good king and that Saul was a bad king. Which raises the question, why is Saul considered to be a bad king by the biblical authors? Now, the reason for this goes back to our effect and cause and the theodicy that we suffer because we sin. Because if you read all of 1 Samuel, then you know that 1 Samuel ends with the battle of Gilboa. And in the battle of Gilboa, you have the king of Israel, Saul, losing a battle and dying in the midst of that battle. Now, when a king who is anointed by God dies on the battlefield, then we have a theological crisis on our hands. Because if God is in fact God of all, then God should allow God's own kings to win every battle. So here you have the effect of suffering, Saul dies in battle, and people looking back and trying to search for causes for why God would abandon Saul on the battlefield. 
For that reason, they highlighted all of his faults and said, this is the moment when God said, I will no longer protect you in battle. David, on the other hand, never died in battle. Not only that, but he was rich. He was powerful. And he lived a long life and died as an old man. All of these things were markers of God's blessedness. So people looked at the effect of David's life, which was never dying in battle and living to a very old age. And they said, clearly God was happy with this man. And by how powerful David was, God was extremely happy. Therefore, David is our greatest king because he lived a long life. Now, if this perception of the divine rubs you the wrong way, you are not alone because this is a primitive understanding of God. The very notion that these three stories about Nadab and Abihu and Miriam and King David and King Saul tell us over and over again that we suffer because we sin. That theodicy is a primitive understanding of God. Now, it's here that you may say, oh, I wish the Bible would clarify that those are primitive understandings and somehow negate the stories of Nadab, Abihu, Miriam, David, and Saul. But what most people don't understand is that the Bible does just that. Because sometime around the 6th century BCE, someone sat down to write a story about a man named Job. And this story came into being because this author had clearly heard the theodicy that we suffer because we sin. Now, the story of Job unfolds with Job facing a tremendous amount of suffering. He loses his house, his livestock, his kids. And just when things are about as bad as they can be, his friends come to visit him and they talk about how sinful he has been. They repeatedly ask him to confess his sins in the past so that that way they can see how God is a God of justice and that Job is suffering because of his sin. But Job refuses. Job maintains his innocence all the way from the beginning of the story until the end. And when you consider the theodicy in which Job was written, we realize that Job challenges the current perception of God of Job's day. Because the story of Job tells us that we suffer even when we are innocent. Not only that, but the story of Job opens in a rather surprising place. In heaven. And God and the devil are talking one day about Job and they strike up a contest to see whether Job will remain faithful to God despite Job facing suffering. Now, if you've listened to this podcast over the past years, you know that I rarely talk about the devil. And if you are like me, you may hear that the devil is being brought up and thinking to yourself, oh no, Craig, this is going to go backwards. I mean, this idea of a devil is a primitive idea. We live in a modern society and I cannot believe in a person, a being living underneath the surface of the earth, tempting us to sin. And while I understand that perspective, you have to transport yourself back 2,500 years ago to see what the author of Job is doing here. Because the devil, by our standards today, is a regressive theological idea. However, 2,500 years ago, the devil was a very progressive and helpful idea. 
Because the author of Job introduces a brand new theological idea, which is God does not cause our suffering. The author of Job grew up hearing over and over again that we suffer because we sin. And whenever you suffer, it's because God wants you to know that God sees your sin and God is a God of justice. The author of Job comes along and says, no, no, we suffer even when we are innocent and God does not cause our suffering. My brothers and sisters, the book of Job, which is in the Hebrew Bible, is a strong and sharp critique of the theodicy that the author of Job had been told by his religion was in fact true. To make things even more interesting, there are scholars out there who will tell you that Job is the oldest book of the Bible to be written down. These are the first words to hit the page that end up making it into the scripture in the form that we understand it today. When you consider that, then you have to look at the Bible in a brand new way. Because the Bible begins when we start to disagree with the religious heritage that has been handed to us. And whenever someone says to you, God is like this, and you respond by saying, well, I haven't found that to be true, it is at that moment that your words become holy. About 600 years after the life of Job, we are introduced to a man named Jesus Christ. Now, Christians profess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And while we could tell all kinds of stories about Jesus, there is one in particular that stands out in the way that we understand the Bible as a developing awareness of human perception of the divine. In the book of Deuteronomy, we read about anyone who dies that is nailed to a tree is cursed by God. Then as we read the story of Jesus in any of the four gospel, we read about how the Son of God is crucified on a tree. The life of Jesus affirms what Job has taught 600 years before Jesus walked this earth. That we suffer even when we are innocent and that God is not the cause of our suffering. But the life of Jesus takes it one step further. The life of Jesus tells us that God meets us in our brokenness. And the minute that religion condemns you or curses you or says that God could never love you, it is in that moment that you realize you are standing side by side with Jesus. God meets us in our brokenness. Pause for a moment and recognize the progressive step forward this is in the way that people perceive God and the way that they understand suffering. It's not really an explanation for why we suffer as much as it is a testimony that God is with us in our suffering. Now, there was a man who witnessed this closely, and his name was Peter, one of the 12 disciples. And he looked at all of the life of Jesus and the conclusion that God meets us in our brokenness, and he declares that this is a radical message of hope. And Peter kept that witness close to his heart so that sometime around the year 65 CE, when he's living in Rome, there are churches that are in modern day Turkey reaching out to him, asking for advice, asking for encouragement because they are suffering an intense religious persecution. 
Peter hears about their religious persecution and he sits down to write what would eventually become 1 Peter. And he writes these people suffering from this persecution. We must remember this when we read 1 Peter. Because when Peter writes these words, he is writing to a specific group of people in a specific time about a specific type of suffering, which is religious persecution. So to those who are in modern day Turkey, he writes these words in chapter 5, verses 6 to 11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that God may exalt you in due time. Cast all of your anxiety on God because God cares for you. Discipline yourselves. Keep alert. Like a roaring lion, your adversary, the devil, prowls around looking for someone to devour. Now, I get a bit defensive when I read that part in verse 8. I get defensive because my natural reaction to hearing someone talk about the devil is that it's a regressive theology. But remember that talking about the devil was the way to remind people 2,000 years ago that God does not cause our suffering. To show how this is helpful today, I'd like to talk about a film that came out in 1995 called The Usual Suspects. In this film, the police are trying to track a villain named Kaiser Sose. And there are rumors that Kaiser Sose isn't a real person, that he in fact may just be a figment of people's imagination to cause people to fear. Well, the police are interviewing people trying to figure out if Kaiser Sose is real and whether or not he committed a crime. And they are interviewing one person who rambles a lot and because of his rambling, he has earned the nickname Verbal. And in the middle of one of his ramblings, as he is speaking to the police, Verbal says these words, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. This is one of the most off-quoted lines of the movie. And what few people realize when they quote this movie is that they are actually quoting a French theologian named Charles Baudelaire, who wrote a book called Quakerism Examined in 1836. In this book, he writes, one of the artifices of Satan is to induce men to believe that he does not exist. Now, I know several Christians, and I have been told by many Christians that if you don't believe in the devil, you can't get into heaven. I find this rather comical because I imagine getting to the pearly gates and someone asking me, hey, Craig, do you believe in Jesus? And I say, yes. And then they say, do you believe in the devil? And I say, no. And they respond by saying, sorry, Craig, you can't get into heaven because you don't believe in the devil enough. <laughs> That'd be crazy, right? And so what most Christians understand this idea to be about the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing people he didn't exist, is that you have to assent to some sort of theological conclusion. And to disagree with that conclusion would be heresy. In my opinion, this is wrong. And to show how it's wrong and how this idea is actually helpful, I'd like to tell you three different stories. The first story is just last week, the day after Halloween, I went out for a walk in the morning with my dog. And I walked along Olive Avenue here in Redlands, California. Now, Olive Avenue is probably the most popular and busy street in all of Redlands during Halloween. It's so busy, in fact, that the police shut down the street 
so that people can walk freely from one side of the street to the other as they trick-or-treat and get Halloween candy. So on November 1 this year, I was walking my dog down Olive Avenue, and I could not believe how much trash was on the street and on the sidewalk. It was really frustrating that people didn't put this trash in trash cans. Not only that, but I thought about all of this trash that would then go from a trash can eventually into a landfill and sit there for decades as it decomposes slowly, Also, that people can have 212 pieces of candy on Halloween instead of four. The amount of trash our society is creating is suffocating the planet. And this suffocation has led to drastic changes within our climate. And I believe that one of the central tenets of Christianity is the ability for us collectively to care for the planet. But what's so frustrating about this is that there are several Christians in America today who deny that our climate is changing. Despite the fact that there is overwhelming scientific data that our global climate is changing at alarming rates, there are Christians who look at it and say, nah, it's not really a problem. Climate change, they say, is a hoax. When I hear these words, I am reminded of this quote from The Usual Suspects. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing people that he didn't exist. Story number two. Any student of American history knows that we have struggled as a nation with white supremacy. From the violent displacement and lying and betrayal of the indigenous persons of this nation to the importing selling and buying of African persons for slavery, to the racial injustice of Jim Crow laws, to the Chinese Immigration Act, and to Japanese internment camps. We are a nation who cannot leave the intoxicating poison of white supremacy behind. Now there are my white brothers and sisters out there who feel like white supremacy was a problem before, but has since been solved. Primarily, my white brothers and sisters will point to the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and say that was the day that white supremacy ended. Then these brothers and sisters will turn a blind eye to an increasing wage gap across racial lines and all kinds of other privileges that white people enjoy today that people of color suffer the brunt of. Now, I'm not proud to admit this, but for the majority of my life, If you would have asked me about white supremacy, I would have told you that it doesn't exist. White supremacy is a thing of the past, I would have said. And there is a large contingent of white Americans who believe that white supremacy no longer exists. It's not a problem anymore. And to myself and to my white brothers and sisters, I believe the words that we would say to them are, The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing people that he didn't exist. Which brings us to a real personal level for story number three. Have you ever been wronged by someone? And when you point out how that someone has wronged you, they respond by saying, "Ah, I don't see how this is hurtful. 
Have you ever gone to someone talking about why you feel pain and they do not experience any remorse? They don't hear you? There is something so terrible when someone wrongs us and they cannot acknowledge how their actions have hurt us. To those people who have hurt us, I am reminded of the idea that the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing people he didn't exist. So with that in mind, let's return to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, and think of the devil in that idea. Because that is how I have found it helpful to read these words that were written 2,000 years ago. Peter writes, like a roaring lion, your adversary the devil prowls around looking for someone to devour. The refusal to acknowledge climate change prowls around. White supremacy prowls around. Pain that refuses to be acknowledged prowls around. Peter then writes, resist the devil, steadfast in your faith, for you know that your brothers and sisters throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. Peter wants you to know that you are not alone in your heartache. He then writes, and after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, support, strengthen, and establish you. To God be the power forever and ever. Amen. My brothers and sisters, these are words of hope. Peter does not offer a quick fix to get through this persecution. He acknowledges that they will suffer for a while. But then he encourages them to keep going. He says, I know it's hard, but if you can take one more step in hope, God will restore, God will support, God will strengthen, and God will establish you. Are you discouraged with the world around you? Peter would say, you are not alone in your discouragement. And while it is difficult, I encourage you, he would say, to keep going. To take another step, assuming that God is working for the good of those who love God. I think that a lot of us like to think of hope as a quick fix or a way to all of a sudden feel better in the midst of our heartache. Peter writes that it's something different entirely. He equates it to a marathon. For Peter, hope is an optimistic endurance that God can and will make all things good. Hope is the ability to look at all of the trash that our consumer-driven economy is creating, to look at the massive corporations who do not care how badly they suffocate the planet, and to lament against those ways of life, and then keep going, and change what we consume, and create less trash in our homes, and in our churches, and then our communities, 
and then hopefully God willing as a global community. Hope is an optimistic endurance that God can and will make all things good. Hope is the ability to look at all of the racial injustice and white supremacy that has happened throughout our nation's history and believe that something can change. Now, of course, this is easy for me as a white man to say because I have not had to bear the brunt of the evil that is white supremacy. But when we look at the racial injustices of today, hope is the ability to lament and call out and say this is wrong because there is something inside of us that says this must change. Hope is not a sprint. Hope is an endurance that God can and will make all things good. And if you feel like you have been written off by someone who just does not understand you, if you have a hard time reconciling with a family member, if there is someone who says, I could never forgive you or vice versa. Hope is an optimistic endurance that God can and will make all things good. At the heart of the Christian tradition is a message of hope. That God looked at this world with all of its tragedy and all of its triumph and said, there is something good about being here. And God sent his son, Jesus Christ, with a message of hope that we can and we will make this world a better place. We will bring justice to all of the injustices. We will take care of the planet better. And where bridges have been burned, God will create another bridge. May we be people who are defined by an optimistic endurance that God can and God will make all things good. My brothers and sisters, may you see and embrace Jesus Christ in all, and may you be filled with the hope that things will get better.